0: If you've experienced the cycle of toxic relationships and you're sick and tired of feeling stuck, sad, and lonely, now is the time to heal and create your best life. In this podcast, you'll hear world-class toxic relationship recovery expert Stephanie McPhail sharing the support, guidance, and tools you need so you can be truly happy whether you're single or in a relationship. She is the real deal. I should know. She's my wife. Here's your host, Stephanie.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Toxic Love Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McPhail. So before further ado, this is the beginning of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This is a topic that of course is very near and dear to my heart because of my personal experience. And what I wanted to do for this month is I really wanted to showcase people who have personally experienced stories of domestic violence and been able to overcome it. Because to me, that's what this is all about, right? We all have these stories. We all have these experiences. And sometimes we feel stuck wondering, is it possible for me to change? Is it possible for me to do something else with my life after I've had these traumatic types of experiences? So the guest we have today has a crazy story to share. I mean, all of these stories of domestic violence, sometimes you wonder, like, how can this have happened? You know, how do we get into this? And so I really am so excited to have Shelly, we're going to welcome Shelly to the show. She's going to share her amazing story of overcoming. So welcome to the show, Shelly. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, I mean, when I heard your story and I can't wait for you to share what you've experienced, you know, I I just was doing a a summit interview today. And I, I think one of the things that a lot of people say is like, part of them say like, this can't be real like this stories that people share it just seems so unbelievable and then you meet i meet people like you and it's just another reiteration that we're not alone so many so many people have experienced different types of abuse and different types of trauma when it comes to domestic violence and i know that your story is really going to really inspire so many people so why don't you go ahead and tell us what has been your experience what what did you notice yourself when it came to uh, domestic violence well first of all
0: i think it's important that everybody is aware that just because you don't think that you see domestic violence doesn't mean it's not happening i live behind the the white picket fence and um upper middle class so it doesn't matter you know your socioeconomic status it doesn't matter. There, it it's, does not discriminate against people. I, um, so <clears throat> I grew up with domestic violence. so I was I was born into it. My dad was a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde alcoholic who became very violent when he drank and to the point that it escalated to him murdering my mother and burning her house down when I was 15 years old. And then things got worse for
1: me. And, and I'm just going to pause I mean, look, and I think that what you said is so important before even the, the story starts is this can literally happen to anyone. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background, people that think I mean, I was someone who thought this couldn't happen to someone like me and there it was happening to me. So for anyone who's thinking, like, these kind of stories don't really happen, well, Shelly's going to share a story of how these things really can happen. So the fact that if it only got worse after your, fa- your own father, since so your own father killed your own mother, I can only imagine what you experienced leading up to that. I mean, it wasn't like it's just one day he woke up and decided to kill your mother. There had to have been other stuff going on before that. Oh,
0: absolutely not. See, and and again, things have changed. It has gotten better. My parents got married in 1960, and they were married for, well, 10 years before I was even born. And I only have a sister that's two years older than me. So they were married for eight years before uh, my sister was born and 10 years before me. But my mom was getting beaten and abused from the very beginning. And to kind of set the stage, both my parents were born in the um, 30s, and my mother had a bachelor's degree education that wasn't nursing or teaching, which was un- unusual. It was business at the time, so it wasn't like she had a abusive upbringing either. Um, it just my my dad's has had a different story. My dad um, grew up with it with an abusive father, and you know that's a. little some of the background there but you know my my mom didn't want to be the first divorce in the family and that was her rationale all this time and but the one thing people always ask me is well why didn't she get out why didn't she get out you know was it was it this or was it that and and my response to people is you don't leave domestic violence you escape domestic violence And my mother didn't escape domestic violence. And there's so many different tales to it. And it's kind of like the frog in the boiling water. You get in when the water is warm and inviting, and it's exactly what you're looking for. And then over time, things start happening. It's maybe one incident here, and then it's the I'm sorry's, and then it's another incident. Well, for me, by the time I was old enough to even remember, my sister and I were intervening with the fights, um, just preventing my dad from killing my mother. I I can't tell you how many times he started threatening to kill us and burn the house down. Um, as early as my earliest memory of that was I was six years old and we were fleeing the house for our lives. And, um, but the next morning we'd wake up, mom might have scratches on her neck or, or heaven only knows what kind of, marks or um things happen the night before and i'm waking up and my dad is cooking homemade hash browns and sausage and eggs and we're sitting down for this i i call them the morning after breakfast where you do not even discuss what happened the night before and were you scared to even bring it up well you i was trained to not bring it up it was like you're, you're trained to accept the abuse. Like Mm -hmm. this is normal. You don't rock the boat. You just walk on the eggshells and you just pretend like this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so you don't even speak about these inside the home, let alone outside the home. And, and, and so this went on my entire life. And, and, but the problem is, is it doesn't happen every day, but, but the outbursts happen so frequently and it it evolves over time. It gets worse over time. And so you you grow up knowing that you can't speak about abuse, that you just have to accept it for what it is, and 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 kind of live in denial that it even exists or that it's even abuse in the first place. And um which sets you up to be victimized in other ways as you Go on. That's why it's generational. You find it generation after generation. It's a cycle that people can't get out of.
1: Do, do you feel like when you, I mean, because you're, you're basically groomed to say nothing, you know, and I, yeah. I can, I can empathize with that when, when it's like, you don't want to know you've been trained basically like we don't talk about that. It's, it's like the shame that everybody knows in your family, but, we don't want to tell anybody else because we don't want anyone else to know what's going on. Even though we might internally be like, please, someone come help me. We don't want anyone else to know what we're dealing with. So we all have this family secret that's going on.
0: Well, and the other thing as a child, um, first of all, your children know, don't, don't think they don't know. I, I have a story in my book where I'm talking about being four years old And my my parents had dropped us off at my grandma and Grandpa Edwards' house. Now, my Grandpa Edwards was a domestic violent alcoholic as well. Um, Again, generational trauma. He's got his reasons. My dad has his reasons. And that's how um, I've been able to forgive them, is I don't know where the accountability begins because they both have PTSD from being war veterans. They both were alcoholics because of their own trauma and my grandfather was an orphan so I mean the story goes on and on but um so we're my sister and I are at my grandparents because my parents had something going on for the weekend and when my parents and I'm four years old my parents come to pick us up from um the weekend being at my grandparents and and mom comes in it's dark outside it's winter and she's got a sunglasses on and I'm like uh and and so um she lies how because she ends up having a you know a, a black eye and she lies about how she received the black eye and it was that it was I was four years old and I specifically remember realizing that she was lying about how she got that and then I internalize that as okay, if it's not okay, if mom's not safe, I'm not safe. And and you're powerless as a child, you you don't have a choice whether you leave or you stay. So you have no choice. And and so your your children know. And and my other thing is if if you're getting choked. That's the closest thing to getting killed as you can. That is the last warning sign. If if you're getting choked, the the percentage of people that end up dying at, after that event starts happening
1: is astronomical. And and that I little just got goosebumps with you saying that. And you know, as someone who myself was choked several times when I was and and. Again, I wasn't getting broken bones, I didn't have bruises, but I had been choked, spit on, threatened, all sorts of other things. And I remember going to speak to a domestic violence advocate to say, I don't know if I need an order of protection. I don't know, I'm just scared. I I knew that I needed help. So she said, well, just give me a list of some of the things that have happened. And when I nonchalantly said he choked me, her jaw dropped and it was really because when you're in it there's like this denial of no, it's not as bad as some of those other people. We, we minimize everything. Mm-hmm. But she reminded me that you know how easily he could have killed me. you he, he could have killed you so much more quickly from strangling than any you know anything else that you were close to death. and and I think that it was like my it was mind-blowing at the, at the mm-hmm. time. like when you're out of it, you're like, oh well of course. But when you're in it, you're not thinking clearly. And again, you're in survival mm-hmm. mode. And so I'm so glad you brought that up because that's not something that's talked about. And actually now the laws have changed with strangulation. It isn't right. it, I'm sure you know what the laws are. I think it's, it's more of like intent to kill. It's actually bigger um, consequences for the, the abusive person when they are strangling someone.
0: Yeah, but 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 there's less marks. I, I mean, my dad, my dad, would you, I, my, there, I talk, another story I talk about in my book is where my sister is pulling my dad off my mom. She's six years old. Or I was six years old. She was sending me to my room. I don't know it happened so many times. I don't remember which one I put in, but he had a pillow over her face. There's no marks. There, there's no marks until you're dead at that point. So, um, So there was so many instances where there were no marks, but I mean, my parents were one month shy of their 25th wedding anniversary. They would go to a wedding and people would clear the the dance floor because my, my dad loved dancing. My parents were like Fred and Ginger and everyone would clear the dance floor. Like there was this, you know, this lovely romance going on when, that very night, he could come home and almost kill my mother. I mean, mm-hmm. that's
1: that's the cycle. You don't know, and that's what's so scary. And then, as a kid, you know, you you get into this place where you never know what you're getting, so you're constantly walking on eggshells. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's such a horrible life to lead. So, so here you are. You're this kid. Your your dad finally finally completes it and and kills your mom what happens? I mean, do you have to go and testify against your father? Like, how <laughs> did that go down? Yeah. Well, I,
0: at first I had to live with them for two and a half years before his trial. Oh my um, God. They didn't, no one took you out of that place. No one took you out. CPS oh. to talk to us zero zero uh, zero amount of times. And so I found, I took myself out as a, cause I was a sophomore when this happened. It was October. It was October 14th, 1985. I was a sophomore in high school. His trial was February of 1988. Mm-hmm. Now that was my senior year of high school. I took myself out of the mix because I got tired of reading about my life in the newspaper. He was trying to strangle and kill my sister because we were living. So we both kinda found our own spaces. I moved in with some friends. She moved in with some friends. I ended up moving to California. Two days um, uh, before my dad, before I had to testify at um, trial, I found out that it was, I had to testify for the prosecution. No one even talked to me. And that was the other thing. Less than um, 12 hours after the fire, so we, we were probably told around nine o'clock at night, it was a Monday night that my mom was dead. And, they are, and on the 11 o'clock news, they had our house ablaze. They already knew it was arson. And by nine o'clock the next morning, we were at the police station to be questioned. I was the last person home before um, I left for basketball practice. So the police really wanted to talk to me because my dad had his version of the story They already knew it was arson and we have a dead 50 year old woman. Okay. The police didn't ask. First, my dad had a criminal defense attorney show up the next morning. That's strange and red flag to me. And the attorney sat in my interview with me, with the police. Now that that was another problem that the police, they didn't ask me not one question about domestic violence, not one. They asked me logistics about the day. They asked me just these benign questions. Now, over the course of their investigation, my mom's sister and grandma and her best friends wrote letters of instances that they knew, which was only a fraction, and sent it in to the prosecutor's office. The police never in a two and a half years time came back and talked to my sister and I and asked us more specific questions. So a week before um, I had to testify, um, my dad calls me in California and says, Shelly, you need to come home and testify in court. For two and a half years, I I, I thought I was gonna escape it. I was still a minor. And so I fly home on a Friday My dad, I'm staying with my dad, by the way. He gives me an address and he says, oh, you need to go to this um, lawyer's office to get prepared for your testimony on Monday. So I go to the lawyer's office, there's no Google at the time, so I go follow that maps to the address. And she starts showing me, and and mind you, because I'm a child of domestic violence, I love my father. (laughs) I love my father and I wanted to believe his story. Mm-hmm. because he was Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It, it wasn't all bad, and but the, the bad was horrendous. Yeah. So now I'm sitting in front of, um, at this lawyer's office, and she starts showing me evidence that I didn't know and I didn't see before because I was a minor. All I knew was what I was reading in the newspaper with everyone else. She starts showing me things and now my denial is falling apart. I can't deny my dad's guilty. My dad's guilty. My dad's guilty. I knew it at my core from the beginning, but now I'm, I'm seeing blood stained carpets that disappeared. Um, there was a stain like three feet in diameter in our living room, which I had been in minutes before I left the house. And they took a photograph of it the night of the fire. They came back. Uh, like a week later to get a sample to send to the lab, the entire carpet, not a rug, we're talking a 20 foot by 20 foot minimum room, um, the carpet and the pad and everything was gone. So they didn't even secure the crime scene. So now, anyway, then she's having me recant these stories about the being six years old and my dad threatening to kill us and burn the house down. All these stories where I'm going, holy crap, how does she know these stories? Yeah. And, and so they put me on the stand to prove premeditated murder. I'm sitting across from my father and I had to go home with him. Oh, oh. So it, it was not, not okay by any stretch. Were you fearful for
1: your safety at all during all this?
0: Yes. I, I mean, I definitely. I knew, well, he had already, after my mom died, I, I I talk about one story in the book where my where my dad I had a leg cast on and my dad's um getting into a fight with my sister and he's trying to pound her head on the counter in the kitchen and I have to come in with on one leg because I had a cast from my groin to my toes because I blew my knee out on a trampoline and I body slammed him into the counter and had my sister leave and um I was my dad's favorite. So I knew that I was in less trouble than her, mm-hmm. but being on that stand testifying it was horrifying. And, and here's the other thing that really, 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 really upsets me is, so my dad, so they took a recess to let the jury leave uh, because I was struggling so badly. And then they asked me all these hard questions, basically, all the questions that prove premeditation and to recall all these stories. And um, then the judge took another recess to call the jury back, which was longer. I went down to the basement of the courthouse to get a drink and here comes my dad. And I'm thinking, oh crap, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And he hugged me. And I'm like, and he just says, he says to me, cause by this time he's sober, right? Cause he sobered up before his trial. And so he hugged me and he says, Shelly, just say what you have to say. And I'm like, I, I was shocked cause I was petrified on the stand. Yeah. And, um, and so it wasn't until I went back to the courthouse and started digging through my testimony in the microfiche and when they, after I got off the stand where I literally was risking my life to tell these stories. For the first time I told anybody anything, it's in open court being recorded. And and his lawyer had a sidebar with the judge and got all of my testimony of all of that um, firsthand eyewitness account evidence thrown out because in 1976, now this is 1988, in 1976, when I was six years old, I didn't remember that it was July 23rd or July 27th or August 2nd or whatever the exact date was that my dad first threatened, that I recall him first threatening to, to kill us all and burn the house down. I remembered where uh, the car that we pushed out of the garage. I remember the pajamas I was wearing. I remember him chasing us down the street. I remember us driving. I could tell him everything. It was the same thing for every event that I literally risked my life to give. And I think I know now that that is why um, he didn't, like, come unglued on me is because he knew it got thrown out anyway. I didn't know that, though.
1: That is awful. This is is such a – again, this is one of those stories that should be on, like, Lifetime. I mean, it just feels like it's so – i mean the thought as a mother myself to think about having to have my child on you know on the stand and have to speak out against her the parents like i just to the little girl in you was so brave to be able to do that and of course the master manipulator was able to still manipulate um you know for for those of you who are like i want to i want more i want to know what happened to to shelly i mean this is a very quick episode to share the story, but you can always get Beautiful Ashes. Um, I was lucky enough to get my own signed copy from Shelley. Um, There it is on the screen as well. But, you know, the true story of murder, betrayal, and one woman's search for peace. So we've only got a few more minutes. I'd love to hear, I mean, how how do you just deal with all of that? How does all of that work out after you're having to go on the stand dealing with that as a child now here you are as a grown adult how are you able to have peace from all of this well it was a long journey
0: and it you know it you have to find the right trauma therapy and for me i also needed to 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 get right with with my spirituality but the trauma therapy is not one size fits all I did talk therapy on and off for 15 years, and I was still praying to die every day. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I had a master's degree education, a bachelor's in engineering, I owned my own home. I was a manager at Ford Motor Company in the auto industry. On paper, I looked like everything was great, but I hadn't dealt with all this trauma. And and what happened with my parents is only part of the trauma uh, that domestic violence set me up to be victimized in other ways as well and um, it's a, it's a miracle I even survived being 15 if, when you read the book you'll you'll understand why because more there's just more and more and more and I didn't even put it all in the book and um, but you have to find the therapy that works for you and I'm telling you stephanie the the stuff that's Talk therapy is great. It's a starting point, but when you have trauma, it is so much more efficient and effective. It's not just efficiency; it's effectiveness when you do these more holistic body work techniques. Because everything you store within yourself, and and you know, my body has paid the price for all this trauma in the form of physical illness too.
1: Yeah, that's, that's something as, as a coach who specializes in healing from toxic relationships. And my, my husband uses something called Psyche-K, which helps with the subconscious beliefs about it. I, I have to say, I completely agree. I think there's a time and a place for talk therapy, but then there's also mm-hmm. a time and a place for coaching and other you know other issues. Because I know for myself, I had so many health issues in dealing mm-hmm. with it, and I'm so much older now and don't have those problems that I did when I was sick. And young, so it, it is so related. And so, you know, I think it's really important for, for those of you who are listening to this is to really just be inspired to know that there is more out there for you. We've in a, a real quick like ten seconds. What's one thing that you'd like to leave the audience with? Is that it,
0: everything does happen for a reason. Believe those cliches, even though they might be frustrating. You you can choose happiness, and you can get through
1: it just keep going and find what works for you. Awesome, I love it. I, I could have kept talking to you, but I know we're limited on time. So I really appreciate you sharing your story. Again, grab um, Shelly's book, Beautiful Ashes. It's a wonderful story for of just inspiration and overcoming and what's possible for you. Shelly, again, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. And never forget, you sure. are way stronger than you realize. See you next episode, everybody. Thanks
0: so that's it for today's episode of toxic love podcast head on over to itunes or wherever you subscribe to your shows one lucky listener every single week who subscribes and posts a review on itunes will be entered for a chance to win the grand prize vip drawing with stephanie mcphail herself be sure to head on over to toxiclovepodcast.com and pick up a free copy of stephanie's gift and join us next time